welcome to tape number 13 in the series, What We Catholics Believe. This tape is what we Catholics believe about the sacraments. I think it would be impossible to overestimate the importance of the seven sacraments in our lives and in our relationship with Almighty God. They're not only the way grace comes to our souls, and we need grace if we're going to lead good lives here, and if we're going to be able to exist even in heaven. But they're also the way by which we know that God has personally intervened in the lives of each one of us. It's not as if he'd come on earth, redeemed us from sin, founded a church, and then left us to manage. He is closely involved all the time. And the sacraments are one of the ways in which he's involved in our lives. So we do need to know what a sacrament is. And again, if we look at the little catechism, we get a definition. There we are told, a sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace, ordained by Jesus Christ, by which grace is given to our souls. Now, as usual, that answer says it all, but again, it's very tightly packed, and we need to unpack it a little and see what all those items mean. An outward sign of inward grace. Now, obviously, God could put grace in our souls without any signs or words or anything material. It wouldn't be beyond his power. But we are human beings. We are made up of body as well as soul. And we need to have some physical evidence that this grace has been given. And that's why all the sacraments have matter and form. They have material things that are used, and they have words that are said. That's the form. When we see the water poured on the baby's head at baptism, and we hear the priest saying the words, we know that that's the instant the soul is filled with grace. The same when we go to confession, and we hear the priest pronouncing the words of absolution out loud, we know that the sins we've told him have disappeared forever from our souls. God knows that we need this, as it were, reassurance. So every sacrament has its outward sign. And usually they're symbolic. The water at baptism is a symbol of original sin being washed from the soul. The oil at confirmation, a symbol of strength being given to the soul. But I don't think you want to spend too much time or emphasis on symbols. If you do, you're inclined to eclipse the true meaning of the sacrament, which is what you want to talk about. So an outward sign of inward grace. Ordained by Jesus Christ, all seven sacraments come from him, instituted by him while he was living on earth found in the New Testament and in the early church, and consistently ever since, and of course still here today. You can't have more, and you can't have less. There's just the seven that he instituted. I know I've heard modern catechists suggest we could have more sacraments. Well, we can't. Even the Pope couldn't give us more sacraments. 
They come from Christ. And likewise, we can't take any away. Martin Luther reduced the number to two for his church. But what authority he had to do that, I don't know. Sacraments are instituted by Christ. And they're there to give us grace to our souls. Every sacrament confers grace. The grace it confers may vary. If your people are being married, receiving the sacrament of matrimony, then they get the grace to live in harmony together and to bring up their children wisely and well. Somebody who's becoming a priest gets the grace to lead a good life as a priest, to offer the Mass, to forgive sins, to teach and to lead a celibate life. The graces will vary, they're tailored to each the needs of each person receiving that sacrament. But every sacrament will give you grace. As long as it's received worthily. That means with the right attitude of mind, and unless it's a sacrament of penance or baptism, it means also that you always receive them in a state of grace. That you have grace in your soul when you go to Holy Communion when you're confirmed or when you're married you're not in a state of sin if you don't have any grace in your soul if you've committed a serious sin and not had it forgiven then you will not receive the grace of the sacrament if you're getting married you'll still be married it's a valid marriage but you don't receive the nuptial graces to enable you to live your married life successfully if you go to confession later, have your sins forgiven and come back to God, your soul has got grace, then you'll receive the grace. It'll be deferred. But sacraments must be received worthily. They're always administered by someone else, usually a priest or a bishop, because they belong to the church, and the church is our link with God. And I think it's important to remember that feelings about the sacraments don't matter that much. You might feel, if you were an adult being baptised, you might feel, oh, this is wonderful. Now I know I belong to God, I can feel the grace in my soul. But you might not. You might not feel anything. And that wouldn't matter. Because the important thing is that you have got grace, God's grace in your soul. It's a reality. It's happened, whether you feel it or not. And that goes with all the sacraments. So never worry too much about the feelings. The important thing is to go along with the right disposition, the right attitude of mind, in a state of grace, unless you're going to confession to have your sins forgiven, or to baptism, and, real, and have the faith to realise that you have now received that grace from God. Now I'm going to go through the, the sacraments in order of reception but I won't deal with baptism, penance or Holy Communion because I've already talked about them on earlier tapes. They are the first three that we receive and nobody can receive any sacrament until they've been baptised so that always comes first in any list. But number four is confirmation. And like baptism, it's a once-only sacrament. 
You receive a mark on your soul. You are confirmed forever. For now, for all eternity. That's why we should really say, not I have been confirmed, but I am confirmed. Because you are. Confirmation makes us strong and perfect Christians and soldiers of Jesus Christ. Ready to proclaim his truth at every opportunity and to defend it whenever necessary. To be witnesses, in fact. It was instituted when our Lord was on earth when he promised that he would send the paraclete because confirmation is when the Holy Spirit comes. And Jesus promised his apostles that when he went, he would send the Holy Spirit, another paraclete, someone equal to him, and therefore God, who would come to them. And of course, he sent God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And his promise was fulfilled at Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday. And the apostles and Our Lady and some of the other disciples were in the upper room having prayed for the nine days since the ascension. And then on the morning of the tenth day, the Holy Spirit came. The first sign was a loud wind in the house. And then fire appeared. Not fire that consumed anything, rather like the fire that Moses saw burning the bush. And that came down through the ceiling, parted into tongues, and appeared on the head of each person in the room, and went into them. That's the symbol the Holy Spirit chose when he confirmed the apostles, and Our Lady, and the other disciples. Fire, because he wanted to fire them to go and preach. And tongues, because they began to use their tongues, speaking. And of course the difference it made was most dramatic. No longer did the apostles want to sit locked in an upper room, hiding from the high priest soldiers. They were burning to go out and preach the word. And so Peter started immediately going to a long window and preaching to the crowd outside. A wonderful sermon in which he explained everything. Telling them that the person they had crucified was the promised Messiah they'd been waiting for. And of course the people listened. And 3,000 of them asked to be baptised and came into the church. Now that was confirmation. The Holy Spirit doesn't come with fire and wind now. But just as surely he comes to each person who is confirmed. And he should fire everybody with the same enthusiasm to preach the faith and to correct error. Young people usually confirmed round about the age of 14 when they are old enough to understand that they are making a very serious commitment. They are saying, yes, I want to belong to the Catholic Church. I believe what it teaches. I want to be close to Christ and I want to serve him. Even if it means perhaps sometimes being discriminated against or suffering for it, I still think it's worth it. It's an opportunity for these young people to choose their own sponsor. The parents choose the godparents when a baby is baptised, but a 14-year-old is free to choose anybody, who, as long as he's a baptised and confirmed Catholic, to be their sponsor when they're confirmed. 
they can choose the godparent they had at baptism if they like. There's no reason why not. They can choose a close relation. But the choice is theirs. And, of course, they choose a patron saint. Again, the parents have given them their name when they were babies. But at confirmation, they have a chance to choose a saint to whom they are particularly devoted to or interested in. They would like to be their patron. Somebody whose life has impressed them, they feel they can relate to. The confirmation is important. It's very sad if people don't come forward to be confirmed. In fact, it's so important that the church says if any child or any person is in danger of death who has not been confirmed, then they should receive confirmation. And in that situation, a priest is empowered to go to the hospital or wherever the sick person is, sick child, and confirm them. So that when they die, they will go to heaven with that extra grace to enjoy for all eternity. The minister of confirmation, the usual minister, of course, is a bishop. And again, it's nice for the young people to get a chance to meet their bishop and for him to speak to them and inspire them to be strong and perfect Christians. After confirmation, many years after, then, of course, the next two sacraments are the vocational ones, marriage and holy orders. Most people receive one or the other, because most people either get married or choose to become a priest or lead a re- <coughs> choose to become a priest because in religious life you don't receive holy orders. Now, though you won't be receiving it, no child will be receiving this, it doesn't hurt to talk to your children about it. I wouldn't leave it until they're on the brink of marriage. Teach them about it. It's too late almost. They need a remote preparation for both these sacraments while they're still young so that they can grow up thinking about them. It's no good trying to tell your daughter when she's fallen in love with a married man when she's about 20 and he's prepared to divorce his wife and marry her that that is out of the question for a Catholic. She won't be able to listen to you because she'd be so emotionally involved. But if you've told her when she's 10, 11, 12 explained the basic rules of marriage only people who are single can get married to each other and they stay married for the rest of their natural lives she grows up with that knowledge and then when she meets anyone later on who's married instantly she realises oh this person is not available before she becomes too emotionally involved So talk about marriage and talk about the priesthood too, in a light-hearted way, never force anybody any direction, but just so that it's in people's minds, so they understand what they're doing. Marriage was part of God's plan from the very beginning. We find it in Genesis. He created us in love, and he wants us to live in love, love with him, love with each other and love as married partners. And of course, Jesus confirmed his teaching in the New Testament. The very first miracle he worked was at a wedding feast. And when you think about that miracle, you realise how delighted he was about the wedding. Because when he made the wine out of water, he made, apparently, gallons of wine, far more than they could have needed. And the wine he made, of course, was the best. 
The steward who was giving it out said to the host, This is very good wine. Most people give the best wine at the beginning. You've kept the best wine till the end. Jesus did that to show his joy at the wedding of the young people getting married. Young people loving each other, unselfishly and generously, gives him great joy. And of course his teaching on marriage was confirmed in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, where he said the famous verse, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's because once you're married, you have made a real relationship. It's just as real as a mother-daughter relationship or a father-son. There is no way you can pretend it doesn't exist once you have voluntarily chosen to make that relationship. And that's something you need to explain to your children even while they're still quite young. The relationship between husband and wife is as real as any other relationship. And it's a fiction to pretend it doesn't exist. Divorce is just not true. It doesn't happen. The relationship is always there. What God has joined together, no one can put asunder. And God has joined you together like that because that is what you have specifically asked him to do. Two young people in love with each other who stand up in church before our Lord on the altar and solemnly vow that they will spend the rest of their lives married to each other exclusively. God takes them at their word. They're responsible. They're intelligent beings. He does exactly what they asked him to do. He binds them together. And that binding lasts as they have set themselves out of their own mouths until death does them part. The marriage is a permanent, real relationship. Quite unbreakable. Now obviously it, it does happen. People make mistakes. With the best will in the world, they marry someone who really is quite impossible to live with for all sorts of reasons. But in that case, they have to separate. They might even have to go through a divorce proceedings for legal reasons or financial reasons. And the important thing to teach and to bring home is that they can never remarry, not while their husband or wife is alive. Because if they marry with someone else, live with someone else as if they were married, they will be committing adultery, which is a very serious sin. Now don't make it sound as if this is a kind of prison, a chain. It isn't like that at all. If you really love someone, that's exactly what you want, to be with them for all your life. And you don't want somebody else there as well, or a series of other people. God is giving us what we really want, what we need and what we want. And the marriage relationship like that is so holy and so good that fathers in the church have compared it to Jesus' relationship with the church itself. Which, as you know, he identifies himself with. So that's what marriage is, and that kind of marriage, if you can make them see this too, is very secure, very safe. People who are married knowing that it's permanent, that they are, they can trust their partner completely, 
feel it's quite safe to disagree on minor matters because they know how secure they are. And the children feel secure the same. Now, I'm not going to say it's easy. It doesn't happen automatically. It has to be worked at, and of course, you do need the grace, the natural grace, which you receive on your wedding day, but which lasts all through the marriage. Every hardship, every problem you come up against, every time you need it, it's there. Might be with your partner, might be with your children. You see, God never asks the impossible. I don't say he's going to make everything easy for everyone all the time, but he never asks anything which is impossible. So a loving, faithful marriage is not usually impossible. God's grace is there to help you with it. And of course you should explain to your children that the sex that God has invented, and remember it's not a human invention, it comes from God, is a good and beautiful thing, a very precious gift much too precious to spoil or cheapen by premarital sex or adultery or unfaithfulness. Youngsters are ideal enough to understand that. And as long as they're warned and reminded, they're quite ready to keep themselves pure for their husband or their wife so that they can give themselves completely in marriage. I think it's important to talk to them about purity and chastity. I think if parents don't do it, nobody else will. And they are virtues that need to be explained and respected. So that they have the strength to stand up against their peer group, perhaps. And explain why they don't cheapen themselves with premarital sex. You also need to explain that, of course, the church doesn't allow contraception. So there is natural family planning, and I think it's a good thing to tell them that that exists, if they find it necessary after they're married. But only, of course, for grave reason. It's rather interesting that the same chapter, chapter 19, where Jesus talks about marriage, and he says quite a lot, talks quite a lot about it, because the apostles remonstrate with him on their own later, when the crowd have gone, and say to him, that was very hard, that teaching on marriage. And he doesn't climb down from it or make exceptions. He says, you don't have to get married. If you think it's too hard, you don't have to get married. But if you do get married, that's how it is. But a little later on in the same chapter, we get the story of the child who was brought to him. Or when he takes a child and says, suffer little children to come unto me. And I think it's very interesting that the two follow one from each other. Because marriage, of course, is for children, as well as for your own happiness. And if you're really unselfish, and marriage is a school to learn to be unselfish, you're not only unselfish with your partner, your marriage partner, you're unselfish with the children too. Because these children you bring into the world with God's cooperation are citizens of heaven. They're all souls for God. And to him, each one is precious. So there's a lot to think about with marriage. There's a lot to tell your youngsters about while they're still young. And then once you start talking about it, you could bring it up again, any time, as long as you've broken the ice. Marriage is a sacrament that can be repeated. 
But of course only if your husband or wife dies. Because then you're single again and you can remarry. Now the other vocational sacrament is holy orders. Holy orders is when a young man comes forward to become a priest. Tremendous commitment. It's one of the four sacraments that Jesus instituted in the upper room. Because he instituted holy orders at the Last Supper. When he gave us the sacrament of um, Holy Eucharist. Holy orders makes a man into an outer Christian, another Christ. That highest calling there is. He's able to offer Mass, to consecrate bread and wine, bring our Lord down on the altar, which is a tremendous privilege. He's also able to give sinners absolution when they come to him in confession, to raise his hand and say the words that take the sins away from their souls. Again, a tremendous privilege, wonderful gift. And of course to give the other sacraments. He's also given the grace to teach the faith. To teach the truth. That's another very important part of priesthood. And that's why only the priest or a bishop or an ordained deacon can preach at Sunday Mass. The faithful deserve to hear a sermon or a homily that is preached by somebody who has been specifically given the grace to do that. And no lay person, no matter how clever they are, has that grace. They might give talks at other times, other places, but the priest preaches at Mass. He also receives the grace to lead a celibate life. And that's not always easy. But with the grace, it's always possible. Once a man is ordained, he is always a priest. This is one of the sacraments you cannot receive twice. His soul is marked. He belongs to Christ. So once a priest, always a priest. And of course, if you're a priest, you don't choose yourself outside to be a priest. You are called by God. It's a vocation, not a right. And the graces you receive, like every grace, are a free gift given by God. Nobody can demand the right to become a priest. That's why it's very foolish when you hear women saying that they have a right to be priests. No, they haven't. Nobody has. Jesus calls the people he wants to be priests. And in his church, and also in his lifetime, he has called men only. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1577, makes it very clear. Only baptized men, and they put the word via, V-I-R in brackets, to show they're not talking about humankind this time, but specifically people of the male gender. Only baptized men can receive the sacrament of ordination. So the church can't ordain women. Not that it won't, it never can. Though you can say, and it's quite true, that all the faithful, everyone who's baptised, shares in the priesthood of Christ to a certain extent. 
But he's very different, the priesthood of the laity. Different, not just in kind, in degree rather, but in kind. Totally different from the priesthood given at ordination. I think we should pray for our priests. They have voluntarily and generously and very unselfishly taken on a life of great commitment for our benefit. I know it's their own benefit too. If they're holy priests, they'll have a wonderful reward in heaven. But it's very much for our benefit. We need priests. And the way we can thank them is by our prayers. Always pray for your priest and your bishop. And teach your children to pray. And of course the priest himself must be a man of prayer. I remember hearing a bishop who was ordained a young man to become a priest. And then he said afterwards in the talk he was giving, addressing the young man, the new priest, if you think you can do this job without God, you will fail. And what's more, you will bring shame on yourself and on the church. It's like any vocation, and marriage is the same here too. We can't live this vocation well without God. That means daily prayer, constant prayer. Then we can. St. Paul said much the same to Timothy, whom he ordained. He wrote to him afterwards and said, Stir up the grace in you from the laying on of my hands. Stir up the grace by prayer. When you teach your young people to pray for priests, teach them to pray for vocations as well. We don't have priests, we don't have the Mass, nor do we have forgiveness in the Sacrament of Penance. Many other things we don't have. We desperately need priests. And the only way we can be sure to have them is to pray. Now the last one of the sacraments is called the last sacraments, or the last rites, or the sacrament of the sick, or it used to be called extra mansion. It's a sacrament for people who are sick, certainly, but most importantly, it's a sacrament for the dying, preparing them for their departure from this life, for their imminent judgment, their appearance before our Lord. And that's an aspect of it that doesn't get taught enough these days. People recognise it as a sacrament of the sick, and they have services where they give this sacrament to people who are sick. That's fine. But it's very important to remember that it is a sacrament for the dying. That every Catholic should have a chance to receive this sacrament on their deathbed. And that's what you need to teach your youngsters, because you don't know that later in life they might be looking after sick or elderly people, relatives or or professionally. And if they're Catholics, they need a priest. They need the sacraments. And they don't need to leave it till it's too late. Sometimes people want to be kind and say, oh, I don't want to worry them, and they don't bring the priest in. That's not being kind. If they need, if there's any question that they might be going to die, the priest needs to be brought in while they are still conscious enough. Because part of the South Sacrament is going to confession. And if they're conscious... And rational, they can make a good confession, which is what they'd want to do. 
So you might prepare them for it gently, but you wouldn't neglect to bring in the priest to somebody who you feel is in danger of death. And it's called the last sacraments because it's more than one. When the priest comes, he will hear the sick person's confession. And that, of course, is always private. Just the priest and the penitent. Then he will give the sick person Holy Communion. Viaticum for the journey. The last journey they're going to make. And then he will anoint them with holy oil. And very often, the priest will also give an apostolic blessing from the Pope. The Pope, you see, is a shepherd for all of us. He can't be at the deathbed of all of us. It's impossible. So he has given priests this power to pass his blessing on to somebody who is dying. A blessing to help them on their journey through their judgment. So this last of the sacraments is a very important one. It might make the difference between someone getting to heaven and not getting to heaven. It's one that should never be neglected. We know it was instituted by Christ because St. James mentions it in his epistle. He talks about the priests coming to the dying and the sick and giving them these sacraments. And of course, this sacrament can be received more than once. If you recover and you get ill again at a later date, you receive it again. You need it again, probably. The sacraments are divided in that way. Of the seven, baptism, confirmation and holy orders can only ever be received once. They change your soul. They make a change in your soul that's lasting. They don't need to be repeated. Marriage and the last sacraments can be received more than once. And of course, the sacrament of penance and Holy Communion can and should be received very frequently. We must thank God for all the sacraments. And the best way we can thank him and show him our appreciation is by receiving the last two, which can be received frequently, as often as we can. They are important. They're one of the three main reasons the church was founded. The church is there to teach the truth. The church is there so we can worship God as we should, in the right way to worship him at Mass. And the church is there to bestow grace through these sacraments. Now today we're going to have the rosary, the second glorious mystery of the rosary, the ascension of our Lord into heaven. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared from time to time to the apostles and to others. Once he appeared by the Sea of Galilee, when the apostles had been fishing all night and he was cooking breakfast for them. That was the time when he said to St. Peter three times, Do you love me, Simon, son of Jonah? And each time St. Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He gave the flock into his care. Feed my lambs, feed my young sheep, feed my sheep. He probably did that just to confirm to the other apostles who were all listening that St. Peter was still the first pope, the head of the church, even though he had denied him three times. 
He'd made up for it, and he was publicly given the flock again. As I say, most of our Lord's appearances were unexpected. But on one occasion, he did tell them to meet him at a mountain just outside Jerusalem. And so, because they knew he was going to be there, they told lots of other people. And St. Paul tells us there must have been a crowd of about 500 there altogether when Jesus appeared. When he appeared at the mountain, he spoke very solemnly to them, All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. Going therefore, teach all nations everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days, even till the end of the world. And he told them to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Exactly the way we baptize today. And then, and this is the starting part, he started to rise off the ground towards the sky. The apostles and our lady would have been there, and the disciples, in fact the whole 500 who were there, watched him with their eyes as he slowly rose and disappeared into the clouds. It must have been extremely dramatic, because they stayed there, staring into the sky where he disappeared for a very long time. Meanwhile, Jesus had ascended into heaven, taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, where he is now interceding for us. And when he saw them still staring into heaven a long time after he'd risen, he sent two of the angels down to speak to them. So two men, clothed in white garments, appeared standing by the others on the mountainside. And one of them said to the apostles, Why are you men of Galilee staring up into the sky like that? Well, Jesus disappeared there, he was told. Yes, said the angel, he did. And he is not coming back again. Not until the end of the world when he comes to judge everybody. You are to go down into Jerusalem, as he told you. And that's when they stopped staring up into the sky. The angels disappeared. And they started to walk slowly down the side of the mountain, back to Jerusalem, back to the upper room. Feeling, I would imagine, very bereaved. Jesus had gone, and he was not going to come again until the end of the world. And they had been given a tremendous task to do, to spread his teaching throughout the whole world. Their great consolation must have been that he had left his mother on earth she was with them. And as they walked back quietly, I should imagine, back to the upper room and started to pray because they felt they needed such help. And that's what we think about while we're saying the Our Father and the Ten Hail Marys and the Glory Be of the second glorious mystery of the Rosary, the Ascension of Our Lord into Heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. 
and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this tape with me. I hope you'll be able to listen to the next one, which is about the great community we all belong to, the communion of saints. God bless you all.